Welcome. This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Being There, Building Trust in Intimate Relationships, delivered by Jeff Stewart, LMFT, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2014. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. Well, it's good to be here with all of you. Um, as I met with the, the committee last night and had dinner, um, I thought of a, a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the Christian writer uh, Frederick Beekner, and uh, he says, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And all of you, I know, have gladness in talking about building healthy intimacy, protecting families, and the world is hungry for that. And so I hope that as you gather information and you're touched and you experience these things today in our, in our presentations, that you'll be able to go out and feed your own families and hopefully spread more connection and light. Um, I'm going to start at the beginning. We're going to talk about building uh, safety and trust in intimate relationships. And we're going to start at birth because that's the best place to start building trust with, uh, with humanity. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, is going to be very sequential in terms of understanding how, as humans, we build trust, lose trust, and then regain trust and safety. Everybody has an inborn and lifelong need to be seen, to be touched, to be, uh, to be paid attention to, to be held, and we don't really ever outgrow that need. And so we, we know that isolation is the most traumatizing thing a human being can experience. Um, we, we know this in, in the prison system. Um, the worst thing you can do to an inmate is put him in solitary confinement. And parents have a version of this called timeout that we do. And so we instinctively know that if we separate a child, um, organizations do this, tribes do this by uh, exile, or religions do it with excommunication. We have ways of isolating people and bringing them back to be able to send a clear message. Um, but it's, it's painful and it's punishing and we don't like it. And here's an important truth. Anytime that we feel any sense of disconnection from important other people, we immediately start making attempts to reconnect. Um, we just have a built-in instinct to start reconnecting immediately. And so you can think of this as um, the ABCs. This is from a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Rebecca Jorgensen, came up with this, um, the ABCs here of attachment, that we're always looking for acceptance, belonging, comfort, and safety all the time. It's like we're, we're smoke detectors, and we're constantly scanning the environment for disconnection. You see this every day in middle school cafeterias around the nation, um, as people go in there and they're wondering whether they're gonna be alone or connected. It happens with babies when a parent gets on the phone. It happens with adults who uh, find themselves alone at the airport, like he was talking about feeling uncomfortable, so they're going to do something to deal with that, so they usually turn to their phone. In the old days, you might just look at the floor, out the window, but now we have ways of trying to, to cope that are different. But anytime we feel disconnection, we try and do something. We can't stay neutral. Humans, we're not very good at staying neutral when we feel disconnected. 
This is a study that was done by Ed Tronic from um, University of Massachusetts. Um, and uh, he, uh, he did this study years ago. It's called the Still Face Experiment. And this, is, uh, this was done with a one-year-old. And I'll just warn you, or I'll just reassure you, no babies were harmed in this uh, study. But it's very uh, descriptive of what I'm talking about. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay. You notice the mom's blinking got faster the longer the video went on? It's pretty punishing to have to watch your baby be in distress and not be able to respond. Every child, every human being needs a primary attachment figure who is going to respond to them when they're in distress, who's going to reciprocate with them. So if my eyes widen, this person's eyes widen. If I point, they'll look. And there's this reciprocal back and forth. It's a dance. And when we don't have that, we start to shrink and become smaller. And uh, there's brain scans that show that our brains get, you know, are affected by this. It's, it's, it's a very real dynamic. And we're really only designed to love a few precious others who can help us endure the squalls of life. John Bowlby, who was an attachment pioneer back in the uh, 40s and 50s, discovered uh, this in his work with children, um, that this quality of the bond is really so much of what determines how we turn out as adults. And so where psychoanalysis back with Freud and others used to blame mothers for everything, um, they were right and they were wrong. They were wrong that it created mental illness, but they were right in the sense that parents had a huge impact Attachment figures had a huge impact on the way we organize the world and the way we the way we deal with emotions the way we make sense of our relationships and Basically it affects the way we see inside of ourselves and it affects the way we see outside of ourselves And so when we talk about building trust and building connection We have to start with the babies. We have to start with focusing on how to create safe connection 
with our children. And if all of your children are grown up and, and you're listening to this and you're wondering, boy, everybody who watches that video often thinks, man, I could have done better as a parent. I certainly feel like that. It's okay because the good news is, is that you're still the parent and they're still the child and you can still work to repair and improve the bond. So this is an inborn need. This is something that um, you know, is not immature, it's not regressive, it's not something that makes us weak or pathetic. Uh, think of this attachment need as um, a baby's way to co-regulate their emotions. We don't expect little babies to self-regulate. That's abuse, that's cruel. We would never do that and um, expect a little infant to just calm themselves down. We, we recognize that they do so much better when we pull them close and hold them. And so here's a challenge question for all of us. At what age do we outgrow that need? At what age do we outgrow the need to be comforted and soothed by another person physically, verbally, emotionally? Is it 18 when we move out? Is it 12? Is it 60? I mean, when do we outgrow it? Well, the answer is we never outgrow it. Some of you may, may know or have been around couples that have been married 50, 60 years and then one of them passes away. And the other person seems to just diminish so quickly. And that has everything to do with this attachment. This primary attachment figure is gone. And yes, there's a community of support and children and grandchildren and there's a lot of love, but there's something about that one special other that we're, we're biologically wired for our safety and survival. When that person's unavailable, we don't regulate as well. And so co-regulation is not the same as codependency. Co-regulation is about recognizing that I can probably regulate myself if I have to, because I'm an adult and I have to figure these things out sometimes, but I just do it so much better with my primary attachment figure. I can come home from a stressful day and talk myself with affirmations and talk myself into feeling pretty good but it just works so much better if my wife just gives me a hug and tells me I'm amazing. Then I just feel like I can do anything. And is that because I'm a big baby? Yep, we're all big babies. <laughs> we're all big babies. There's nothing wrong with that. We all have not outgrown that need for co-regulation and attachment. As adults, we have to learn how to regulate that, how to work with it, how to send clear signals so we don't you know, fall into becoming you know, abusive, manipulative, immature, and unhealthy. But those needs are, are good, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, throw them out. So when talking about primary attachment, we really have two primary attachments as human beings. Um, in the Bible, it says that we leave mother and father and cleave to our spouse and become one flesh. And so we're born with primary attachment, and our parents have a... Have a a need, an obligation to provide safety, our survival. They feed us, they touch us, they clothe us, they look at us, they talk to us. And then, as we get older, we leave that attachment and we cleave to another. And notice it doesn't say, leave mother and father and negotiate and choose and decide intellectually what kind of a person you're going to be with the rest of your life. No, the, the word is cleave, which has a very desperate quality to it. Because attachment is a survival instinct. And so when we leave mother and father, we find somebody that we can hold on to. That's why love songs and people in young love are just so annoying, right? Because it just seems so over the top. 
like it's almost life and death. Well, it is. As we're forming a new bond, it is life and death. It's, it's irrational in a lot of ways. People seem kind of crazy. Um, I was there too. I remember those times, kind of. <laughs> um, most of us don't have a great memory of it because it's just so full of emotion. But this is what Philip Flores says. He wrote a great book called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. And uh, he says, regardless of our age or emotional development, we will always require some degree of emotional regulation from others. The denial of that need for others is what leads individuals to seek gratification, like drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, outside the realm of interpersonal relationships. And so relationships then are the solution for addiction. As we often say in our program, the opposite of sobriety, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection because that's the real thing. So love, understanding love and attachment and bonding and how this all works, just the idea of love has been misunderstood forever. Um, some people think of it as, you know, two cloudy hearts in the sky and everything's just so wonderful. Is it delusion? Is it just sentiment? Is it an addiction? You know, is, what is it? Are people just, you know, is, is it something we should outgrow because love is just, you know, it's not really what long-term relationships are built on. So people have been confused and writing about this for, for centuries. Um, but love, love has been decoded now. And thankfully we have, in the last 20 or 30 years, have based on the work of John Bowlby from the 40s and 50s, and attachment pioneers like Sue Johnson and others who have, who have really broken the code to help us understand that love is actually very logical. We can understand it. We can, we can, we can understand how it's built, how it's broken, and how to repair it. And I want you to hear from Sue Johnson for a minute. She's wonderful. Human beings may be very different, but in our hearts, we all want the same thing. A loving partner who offers us comfort and connection so that life's joys can be savored and hurts can be tolerated and survived. We are wired for connection. Nothing is more toxic for us than emotional isolation. The top question on Google for 2012 is the same as the one posed all through history by philosophers and poets. What is love and how do we find and keep it? At last, we have the answer to that question. Social scientists and psychologists like myself have cracked the code. I think this is big news. I think this is right up there with landing on the moon or solving the riddle of how DNA structures our nervous system. It is time. Time for us to learn how to connect in a world that becomes more impersonal every day. Time to tune into the rhymes and reasons of our most precious relationships. I invite you to read Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love where I lay out what we have learned in 25 years of helping couples connect and shape the bond they long for. We can do this. We don't have to be lonely or give up on our relationship dreams. She referenced her book, Hold Me Tight. If you have not added that to your library, I encourage you to do so. Um, it's the book my wife and I give out for wedding gifts. Um, we have a case of them sitting at my house and so um, like she said, it teaches us how to shape our bond. And isn't that wonderful? A lot of the times, 
um, we wonder, how do we form and maintain a healthy bond with another human being? It's by understanding attachment, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, really quickly, the research on attachment is, is, is clear, that when we have secure bond with somebody else, um, we experience less depression and anxiety, we're less aggressive, we're more flexible, we're more curious, we have increased self-awareness, we have increased other awareness, we can problem-solve better, our physical health improves dramatically, and this is the one that I love the most is it decreases our susceptibility to shock and pain. Some of you may have heard of the, the uh, MRI studies they did uh, back in North Carolina with uh, Jim Cohn. And what they found is when they put somebody in an MRI machine and were scanning their brain to kind of watch what the brain was doing, they also had a, had a, a screen that would show you know, a dot or a square or little things like that. And, and the person knew that if they saw a certain pattern or sequence, they were, they were going to get a little jolt on their foot. And they did this study where they had um, the individuals in the, uh, in the tube in isolation. They had some holding the hand of a stranger, and they had some holding the hand of their partner, of their spouse. And what they found is that when they were alone, the pain was excruciating, the fear, the anxiety, the brain was going crazy. When there was a stranger, it seemed to get quite a bit better. But when there was a loving bond and the people had taken marriage assessments to, to rate the quality of their relationship, they said that they could barely detect the pain. And it was the same shock. And what was interesting is the people that had really bad marriages, it was almost the equivalent of holding the hand of a stranger. And so the quality of the bond matters significantly. It's not enough just to be with somebody. It should motivate us to want to improve our bond. So isolation is actually physically traumatizing for us, physically painful. And when people talk about, you know, feeling a broken heart or feeling it in their body, just like that little baby who was crunching up and feeling so overwhelmed physically, that's what we feel when we're cut off and isolated. It's awful. And those, uh, those cues can throw us into a really dark place. And I think there's a paradox in modern society that because we've lost so much community in neighborhoods and you know in, in our in our neighborhoods and in our cities we've lost so much of that sense of community that we depend on our attachment figures which is our spouse or our families so much more than we probably ever did historically where we had more of a community to rely on and more connection and so there's more pressure on our marriages today to get this right but because of all the other technologies and other things that are splitting us apart, we're, I think we're worse equipped now to do it than ever. And so there's a real paradox going on where we need each other more than ever, but we're less available to each other. And so I hope that as you hear me talk today, you'll make some personal decisions, as I have tried to do, to make myself more available for my loved ones, recognizing how much they really need us and how much I really need them. Dr. Flores, I'm gonna share another quote. He says, no one ever escapes their need for satisfying relationships. And the degree to which we are unable to form healthy interpersonal intimacy determines the degree to which we are vulnerable to substitutes for human closeness. So pornography, any sort of sexual acting out, screen addictions, any type of addiction is really 
our vulnerability to lack of human connection. Think of it as a counterfeit attachment. It's a substitute attachment. When I'm connecting to something that's counterfeit, it's giving me the experience that I'm connected or that I'm, I'm getting some sort of satisfaction in the same way that eating a bag of Doritos signals to me that I'm getting nutrition for just a moment. Um, but recognize, of course, that on the back end of that, there's going to be a consequence. Real connection, real human intimacy does not leave us feeling empty. It sustains us and it, it fills us. So the only way to really heal is to heal in community. You know, this is, this is what, the, what Bill W. figured out with addictions back in the 30s, that you just put a bunch of guys together in a room and start talking about your problems, even though they had no idea what they were doing, things started to get better. All of a sudden, the addict was now healing in a community. And it was really less about what they were talking about and just the fact that they were starting to reveal and be open and transparent and rely on each other that started this. And granted, since then, they've, they've become much more uh, sophisticated in how they, they administer these programs. But I was talking to Real and Stephen Croshaw last night, and they said, the bulk of what works in 12-step is that relationship between the individual and their sponsor and working together and that sense of community. That's what works. So we don't really heal or rebuild trust with anybody in isolation by reading a book about it or just trying to outthink it on our own. We do it by showing up and trying to be connected. But it's messy. Dr. Tronick says that, you know, we thrive in messiness. It's better. This is why we put up with crazy relationships a lot of the time. This is why we put up with mess in marriage and with our kids. Is it's just a lot better than being alone. Granted, there are times where it just doesn't make sense, where it's not safe to be close, or you might need to take a break from each other. But ultimately, as humans, we do put up with a lot of messiness to get this right. But you think about how many times between like a parent and a baby, we get it wrong. If you're thinking about trying to read the signals from a nonverbal infant, I'm guessing that most mothers and fathers miss more than they hit, wouldn't you say? That they'll, they'll guess wrong 30 times to the one time, but then in our mind we're going, we got it right. That's great. And the baby gets what they need and everybody's happy, but we're not sitting around going, man, I'm a horrible parent. I missed it 29 times. And it really, but adults, we have very little tolerance for missing it. If we get it wrong with another adult or with our spouse, we think we're just the worst spouse in the world or that they're just such an idiot. But the reality is we're going to miss it a lot of the times. I don't think we miss it as much with adults because we have more words. But sometimes we do, and that's okay. We just have to stay with it like we do with our babies. Part of why it's messy is that when we're hurt by a loved one, when trust is broken, whether it's something significant like a, like a major betrayal and secrecy and lies, or something less uh, dramatic and less uh, wounding, like maybe a misunderstanding or, or forgetting something. Um, the reason that that hurts so bad and why it's so confusing and so messy is because we are all the source of comfort for each other in our primary attachments. I am my wife's source of comfort. She is, I am hers, we, or she's mine. And we are so reliant and dependent on each other for that secure base. But when I hurt her or she hurts me, I'm now the source of pain. So I'm two things to her. I'm a source of pain and I'm a source of comfort. Which am I? I'm both. So there's an instinct in her to want to run from me and run to me because she's programmed when she's in pain to run toward me. 
But if I'm the threat, she wants to run away from me. You see the dilemma? This is why we feel crazy a lot of the times in our relationships is because we're both things to each other. And you put two people in that situation and you have endless opportunities for confusion and drama. But if you can understand what's happening and that there's a real legitimate healthy need in there to be safely connected, then you can learn how to shape that and navigate that and not feel like there's something wrong with you because there's not. Our first instinct as humans is not aggression. It's not sex. It's not these impulses. Our first instinct is to seek contact and comfort. That's the first instinct we have. And when we, when we separate ourselves from that, we all lose out. The two words I would love for you to write down and take away from this whole presentation are accessibility and responsiveness. Learning how to be accessible and responsive to your loved ones is the way you build trust and the way you repair trust. Sue Johnson says the people we love are the hidden regulators of our bodies and our emotions. It's hidden because we often don't realize it. So when somebody says sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me, that may be true for strangers, but it's never true for primary attachment. It's never true for primary attachment. A lot of people have told me in my, my office over the years, I would rather have my spouse punch me in the face than ignore me. You know, just do something to me, but don't talk to me that way. Don't ignore me. Don't hurt me emotionally because we rely on those signals to affirm to us that we're safe and we're connected. So the way we co-regulate our bodies and our, and the way we co-regulate our bodies and our emotions with each other is through being accessible to each other and responsive to each other. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, I've had people say to me, well, I grew up in a pretty good home. You know, dad was always there every night. Well, what was he doing when he got home? Well, he's sitting there reading the paper, watching TV, yelling at his kids to get away from him. So he was accessible physically. He was there, but he really wasn't accessible, was he? And he wasn't really responsive. So being there is not just about filling a seat. Being there is a very active presence of being accessible to those you love and responding to them, just like that baby. That mom technically was there, but she was not there, and the baby wasn't fooled for one second. You saw how fast the baby picked up on that. Here's a little, little girl who gets this. Wow. I, I, I see this. Can I like the fingers? Wow. He did. He did. He had, he had a little... Accessible and responsive, yeah? How many of you have not seen Castaway? <laughs> okay. Isn't it interesting that in a movie about survival on an island, they would include attachment? Did anybody here who saw Castaway think Tom Hanks was crazy for talking to a volleyball? Anybody want to admit that? We all just kind of... You did... <laughs> 
we all just sort of got it, didn't we? We were like, oh yeah, I'd probably talk to a volleyball too if I was stuck on an island. Um, the screenwriter, I read a, an interview with him that he was actually dropped onto an island um, while he was writing this. He wanted to get in the headspace of a castaway. And there was an actual volleyball that was on the island. It somehow ended up there. And he noticed he, every morning he'd wake up and look for the volleyball and want to kick it around. And he started to realize that he'd kind of formed this action-reaction thing with his volleyball. And that was like his buddy. And that's how Wilson was born. We need connection as much as we need air and water and food and shelter. Um, I'm going to show you a quick video clip from Castaway. I hope it's okay. It's a little dark because it's filmed at night in his cave. But it's a scene where Tom Hanks, his character, punts. Uh, he has a fight with Wilson in the cave. And he punts Wilson out of the cave and uh, just so angry. So there's this, there's this injury, broken trust, broken bond. But I want you to watch what he does to repair this bond and how desperately he needs that. Now he's looking for Wilson out in the ocean. So you can see some of the behaviors that he did in there to really rebuild trust was accountability, never again, I'm so sorry. And then there's this very tender, intimate fixing and repairing to put Wilson back together. And this almost like little baby behavior of like we do with each other when we're feeling really bad and disconnected. I'm so sorry, I know you. Like, hey, we're playing again, we're reconnecting, getting that synchronization back together. That's how bonds are, are restored. And I think it's a beautiful example of that with an inanimate object. It works the same with people that respond to. And your spouse may be just as still as uh, Wilson there. It may not feel like responding at all. But you still do that anyway, because that's just what we need. So um, my colleague, Mark Chamberlain, and I, uh, in our writing our book together, we, we, we talked a lot about kind of this sequence of, of rebuilding uh, trust and understanding it as what we would call relational oxygen. Polar bears can only stay underwater about two minutes, and they have about the physical uh, equivalent of oxygen capacity that a, a two-year-old or a little baby or child does. Little babies can't stand being away from or disconnected from their caregivers for more than a few minutes. It's very distressing to them. And, and so they have a very low, what we would call relational oxygen capacity. As we get older, that changes a seal uh, can go up to 30 minutes underwater without air. And as we get older, we can go longer and spend more time apart from each other, and we don't go into crisis. And as we, as we get into adulthood, some whales can go underwater and stand there for two hours without air. And as adults, we can spend time away from each other. My wife's back at home right now. I've been on this trip for a couple days, and we're talking and stuff, but it's not throwing either one of us into crisis and, you know, that kind of a thing. So, there's, there's, there's increased capacity the more secure bond we have over time with people. When there's betrayal, when there's trauma, when there's any kind of disconnection that's really significant, we return back to the relational oxygen capacity of a polar bear. And that's not because we're just immature or regressive or controlling or manipulative. It's because we can only trust what we can see, just like a baby. And so to rebuild trust... We have to have enough experiences over time to increase that capacity to believe that this person is going to really be this person all the time. And so if you're the one that's broken trust, you have to recognize that if you want to rebuild that capacity in your partner again to trust and believe 
that you're this same person, they can hold that space, it will take repeated hundreds, if not thousands of interactions that match, that show, when I put you down, I'm going to come back for you, just like we do with babies. Even though we're adults, it's the same sequence. There's no difference. And so this is why a lot of the times people that have been traumatized or betrayed incessantly check um, phone records or need to always have them there or don't leave town or take me with you or we just need to be able to believe what we can see and if we can't see it we don't believe it just like a baby doesn't believe that mom will ever come back into the room after she leaves this is a hardwired attachment response and we have to privilege it and work with it if we're going to repair damage so think of it as rescue breathing in the same way that we offer a rescue breath to somebody who's got low oxygen capacity we have to do the same for those we're trying to rebuild trust with we have to be present. We have to be accessible and responsive. And I'm going to show you Sue Johnson's research shows that there's three areas where we can do this. Uh, the first one, again, is to be accessible. We talked about that earlier. But I'm going to tell you specifically what that looks like. So here are some questions you can ask yourself to really rate how accessible you are or how accessible your partner is to you in your relationship. So accessibility, here are some of the questions. I can, or some of the statements around it, I can get my partner's attention easily. True or false? I can get my partner's attention easily. My partner is easy to connect with emotionally. My partner shows me that I come first with him or with her. My partner shows me, or I'm not feeling lonely or shut out in this relationship, and I can share my deepest feelings with my partner. These are, these are statements around accessibility. The next one is being responsive which I told you about earlier. Here's what responsiveness sounds like. If I need connection and comfort, he or she will be there for me. My partner responds to signals that I need him or her to come close to me. They'll respond to me. I can find that I can lean on my partner when I'm anxious or unsure. Even when we fight or disagree, I know that I am important to my partner and we will find a way to come together. And the E in the ARE stands for engaged. And this is really about accessibility and responsiveness over time. So you'll hear the nature of these questions are things like, I feel very comfortable being close to or trusting my partner. I can confide in them about anything. I feel confident even when we're apart that we're still connected to each other. I know my partner cares about my joys, my hurts, my fears, and I feel safe enough to take risks with my partner. That's about engagement. That's about knowing that they're there for you over the long haul. When you're rebuilding trust, you can only go as fast as the slowest person. That's an important principle. You can only go as fast as the slowest person. I think we have a tendency to try and rush rebuilding trust, believing that if, hey, I'm sorry I made a mistake. I'll try and do better. I'm a good person. But if the other person is moving like a tortoise and you're the hare, you just get on their back and just ride at their pace, and it'll work so much better. If you try and speed that along, it creates abandonment. It creates attachment distress. It creates isolation. So the only way to fix that is to stay right at the same pace as the person who is trying to rebuild trust. Um, this is a little thing I saw on Facebook. It's a little pixelated here. I apologize, but that's the quality of Facebook, I guess. Um, it's somebody that says, what's wrong? I don't know. How can I help? I don't know. Okay, well, I made you a nest. You want to come? Okay. Does that help? Yeah. Are you ever going to come out? No. Okay, hang on. 
and they climb in there with them. That's the best infographic, if you will, I've ever seen of rebuilding trust about staying with somebody who just isn't sure where they're going to move. When we betray somebody, whether again it's something very significant and very deeply wounding or it's something that we feel like is less significant, it's all significant because it paralyzes us. It sends a distress signal. Our body cannot tell the difference between a high-level threat and a low-level threat. If my wife rolls her eyes at me, which is just hypothetical, by the way, um, if she ever were to roll her eyes at me, my body would code that as dangerous. Why? Not because I'm afraid she's going to hurt me physically, but because my body's always scanning for disconnection all the time. And if she's annoyed or going to distance herself, I'm hardwired to treat that as a, as a primal threat. I'm going to be alone, which is silly because I can take care of myself. I can feed myself and clothe myself and I can find a place to live and do all these things. But my attachment system says, isolation is dangerous, you will not be okay, and then I go into panic. So something as small as an eye roll all the way to something as significant as a secret life or a big betrayal, you can see how devastating betrayal is and how long it can take to rebuild that trust. I had an individual reach out to me recently. He and his wife are having an in-home separation, which is basically him sleeping in one bedroom and her sleeping in another because they don't feel like they, they're ready to do a big separation. But they're struggling. Their marriage is really on, on, uh, on the rocks. It's difficult right now. He texted me a few days ago, and he said, you know, my wife and I are still kind of talking a little bit. He's all, things are tough and tense, but, you know, we're still home together. And he said, I've got this business trip coming up out of state. And I've got this hotel room, and I've got, you know, my flight booked. And he goes, and... Isn't it be weird to invite her just to come with me so we can just be together? Because I don't want to make things worse. So here's what I wrote him back. I'm going to read you my text message to him. I just realized I have it right here. I'll just read it to you. I said, I think it's always wise to err on the side of connection. I would invite her and let her know that you respect if she needs space from you still but that let her know that she's really important to you and that you want to spend time with her. And he wrote back, sweet, thanks. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to invite her or not. It's always important to err on the side of connection. The reason that we always say, well, should we just like leave them alone? That's because of our own fear of rejection. So if you're not sure which direction to move when you're trying to rebuild trust, move toward them not away from them. Away signals danger. Because remember, you're a source of comfort and you're a source of pain. If you're that much of a source of pain and you're that dangerous, they'll push you away and tell you to give them some room. But it's better to err on the side of closeness. Now, if they're saying to you over and over and over again, go away, get away, don't be around me, and you know, you have to respect where they're coming from. But again, you err on the side of closeness because we don't want to be alone. So this gets into what we would call skills versus presence. For years, people that were trying to fix marriages, therapists, researchers, educators, were teaching what we would call active listening skills. You guys know what those are? I statements? Has anybody ever successfully used an I statement in your marriage? I never have. 
Because when my wife and I are arguing, my brain quits working. And I can't remember all my scripts and I statements that I'm supposed to use. And the research shows that pretty much nobody can. Because that primal panic comes up. That sense of like, I've got to do whatever it takes and this is going to get messy, but we're going to figure this out. And so skills are really quite worthless unless you've already fixed the bond. Well, how do you fix the bond? Well, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to fix the bond through skills. But you don't fix or create a bond with a baby through skills. Have any of you ever built a bond with a baby through I statements? I love you. I feel so close to you. You know, we don't do that. That's just ridiculous. We pull them close. We hold them. We love them. We play with them. We interact with them. So if you're wanting to build a secure bond with your partner when you've got conflict, then you figure out how to shape that bond by sending very clear signals of how important they are to you and how you want to be with them. And that contact comfort is going to help you be able to start building that bond. It could be something as simple as just taking personal accountability and saying, I don't know what we're fighting about. I have no idea what I'm even going to do. I have no idea what I think about this. All I know is I don't want to lose you and you're super important to me and I hate being without you. And for them to get the signal that you're not going anywhere, that you're going to stay in it, and you might need some space or some time or whatever, and it might take a while, but the signal is clear. I don't want to lose you. This is not unhealthy. A lot of the times we've been taught the healthiest people don't need other people. That's such a lie and does us such a disservice. Men and women are not from Mars and Venus. We are from the same planet. We need the exact same thing. We go about it differently, which is why there's a lot of comedy about men and women, but the core need is the same, which is actually very reassuring for me because it helps me understand what my wife really needs. She needs the same thing I need. And so if I can tap into that and start to move toward her and, and, and work that bond and that connection and send very clear signals of how important she is to me and she can start to, I can start to see and feel that back, then everything else now are just problems because we've solved the real problem, which is the disconnection. Once we solve that, everything else is actually pretty easy. And the research shows that couples don't even need relationship skills to even figure that stuff out. Because when you feel safely connected to somebody, it's easy to talk about stuff. And you do it quite well. And there's tons of room to like, figure things out. But when you're disconnected, you feel like you have no room and there's a tightrope. But the tightrope you're walking is the disconnection fear. It has nothing to do with the issue. The reason you're afraid to say the wrong thing is because you're worried about losing the connection. So fix the connection and the relationship will stabilize quickly. And good, solid couples repair is all about seeing that dance and understanding when I do this, she moves like this. And then when she does this, I move like this. And this is what we're doing to each other. And this is how we get caught in this awful cycle and lose each other. And then we both feel worse. So when couples can see that, and recognize how it's happening to both of them, that's when they can shape that bond and trust is starting to be restored. Trust is not restored logically through promises and, and intellect. It's solved through presence, accessibility, connection, and paying attention and being really, being really committed to, to getting the connection part right. And the more accessible you are to your partner, the more responsive you are to your partner, the more engaged you are, the faster that process happens.
This is a little video that Google put out for Valentine's Day years ago. And to me, it absolutely encapsulates everything I'm trying to talk to you about today. Enjoy. tried so hard my dear to show that you're my every dream yet you're afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme a memory from your lonesome past keeps us so far apart why can't I free your doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart? I'm going to conclude with this thought. In love, you don't need to be rich, smart, or talented. You just have to be there. Thank you. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.